Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Terry Bray, the Director of Technology Licensing at Georgia Tech Research Corporation, also known as the GTRC. Terry has over 25 years of experience in the creation, development, and commercialization of innovative technologies. Prior to joining GTRC, Terry held positions as the Executive Vice President of Business Development at Atherotech Diagnostics Lab at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, also known as UAB, as the Director of Physical Sciences in the UAB Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, as a Senior Licensing Associate in the Office of Technology Transfer at North Carolina State University, and as a researcher and faculty member in the Department of Biomedical Engineering at UAB. Terry has extensive experience in the management, patenting, and licensing of intellectual property, as well as facilitating startup company formation and economic development. While a researcher at UAB, Terry developed several technologies that were commercialized and is an inventor on several issued patents. In fact, I was curious about some of Terry's patents and looked them up on the USPTO website. A good example of one for anyone who might be interested is US patent number 7700363, entitled A Method for Screening Crystallization Conditions in Solution Crystal Growth. Terry has a BS in chemistry from Mercer University an MS in chemistry from Georgia Institute of Technology, and a PhD in chemistry from UAB. And with that very impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Terry. Thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate you having me. It's uh, great to be here. Well, thank you so much again for taking part in the podcast. I really appreciate it. Let's go ahead and get things started by talking about Georgia Tech Research Corporation. My understanding is that there are two research organizations at Georgia Tech that support research activities, the GTRC, which you're a director of, and the Georgia Tech Applied Research Corporation, also known as GTARC. And I understand they're both 501c3 organizations, they're cooperative organizations, but I think it'd be interesting for people to know if you can tell us a little bit about each of these two organizations, what they are, how they differ from each other, and whether or not the two organizations have any interactions with one another? Um, sure. So the, the organizations, to some extent, sort of coexist. So GTRC handles um, contracts that would be sort of the, of the traditional sponsor project variety that most people are aware of from NSF, NIH, uh, pretty much any company you might name that wants to sponsor research at, to, to be performed at Georgia Tech. Those contracts are with GTRC. Um, GTARC was set up because of uh, Georgia Tech Research Institute, which is a component of Georgia Tech, but they have a um, somewhat different research enterprise. They do a lot of research that is more oriented towards uh, certain federal agencies, and those contracts are structured differently. So we had to set up a different 
legal entity to handle those contracts because certain aspects of the contracts are handled uh, differently than uh, contracts from the other agencies and companies that I spoke of earlier. So that's why they're these two separate legal entities, but they do work as sister uh, institutions uh, or sister entities in managing uh, sponsored projects from external partners. Interesting. Interesting. Um, That's the first, I think, university that I've heard having two separate research uh, organizations like that. Are you aware of any other, or is that just unique to yours? Yeah, I was going to say, I've not seen that before. Very interesting. So can you tell us a little bit about how your office is structured in terms of the licensing function, legal? Do you have any business analysts? Uh, How exactly do you guys, are you organized and how do you work? We are uh, set up sort of as, at least my unit set up to perform the traditional tech transfer function that every major university um, has at at this point. Because we are part of a separate legal entity, we are able to to do things a little bit differently than some uh, can. Uh, it gives us a little more flexibility in how contracts may be structured, terms that we can agree to that a tech transfer office that's part of a state institution itself may not be able to, for example. But by and large, the functions that we perform within my unit would mirror um, most other uh, university tech transfer offices with uh, a director, have a team of five other licensing professionals at different levels of seniority that uh, that work with me to manage all the intellectual property that has been created at Georgia Tech. And um, to sort of circle back a little bit and and why we're a separate legal entity, that again does allow us that contractual flexibility and the the, uh, intellectual property that comes from all this research activity that goes on at Georgia Tech is actually assigned to and owned by Georgia Tech Research Corporation. It's not owned by GIT. Um, and so when we receive those invention disclosures, it then falls into my group's management, and we do all the things that a tech transfer office does in terms of evaluation, making decisions about patenting, uh, working with patent counsel to get patents prosecuted and issued, and um, identifying licensees, and then negotiating licenses, and then all the post-license diligence that one would do. How about startups? Does that run through your office? I'm, I'm assuming, Yeah. It would. I mean, we, you know, any of those require a license. It's just a matter of who that license is with. Is it with an existing company or is it with a startup company? Got it. Turning now um, to Baidol, um, you and I were originally planning on doing this interview at, at Autumn, but uh, we got thwarted due to the coronavirus. And one interesting aspect is that this is, we're coming up on the 40th anniversary of Baidol. And I was wondering if you could reflect a little bit on its impact that it's had on innovation in the U.S., on universities, and if you had the ability to advocate for any changes for Baidol, what might those be? Well, certainly, I, I think it's arguably one of the most important and successful pieces of legislation ever passed in the history of this country. Um, it has had tremendous impact on getting innovations created with federal funding um, out into the marketplace by allowing universities and other um, creators of those innovations to claim ownership and to do all the things that one needs to do to, to get it into the hands of a company that can turn it into a product or service that benefits society. So, you know, taxpayers get a return uh, in the form of new products and services that make their lives better, easier, uh, or what have you, uh, than that they would otherwise probably not have been able to have access to. Um, if not for Baidol, it has created um, certainly millions, if not tens of millions of jobs uh, through companies that have um, been formed around technologies. Uh, it, it's just had you know, a, a, a tremendous impact on 
uh, the economy and society. Um, and, and most importantly, it's, it's allowed these really interesting innovations that, that were created from federal research dollars to actually benefit society, which is the most important part of it. Yeah, I, I can't imagine in this day and age that a legislation quite as encompassing as that might pass in the same form as, as Baidol actually passed. So um, it's really difficult to get that broad sweeping type of legislation through anymore. So anything that you might change about Baidol at all? Um, legislatively, I, I, I can't really think of anything particularly that I, I would like to see changed. I mean, certainly there have been changes from time to time. There were some fairly recently. You know, my, my hope is that, that any changes in the future would just not weaken it or make it harder to do what we already do. Um, hopefully any changes would, would actually make it easier to do what we do. But I think by and large, it's it's been a very successful law. And, and hopefully any changes to it will just be tweaks to the positive and not create barriers that don't need to be there. Yeah, it's been amazingly positive for innovation like we were talking about. Speaking of that, I noticed on your website that Georgia Tech received a substantial amount of money in new research awards in 2019. Uh, It really was very impressive. Could you give us some idea about those numbers and and where this funding came from? Sure. We have prided ourselves on how uh, we've been able to grow the research enterprise that starts first and foremost with extremely uh, bright uh, faculty, graduate students, staff on campus who are coming up with really innovative ideas, who have really interesting research capabilities. But, you know, I think an equally important part of that is to have a a organization and structure that allows us to um, facilitate getting these uh, awards executed so that the researchers can do what they what they love to do and and you know obviously I don't take credit for any of this because uh, this trajectory was was uh, going long before I got here but but we were uh, able in the last fiscal year to surpass a, a billion dollars in uh, in a sponsored project funding that's an incredible amount of money yeah yeah we're really really happy to see uh, to hit to hit that target it's certainly been a goal of the institute for a number of years uh, again, long predated me, and, and I think everyone was quite pleased we were able to achieve that. One really interesting you know, part of that is that probably 11, 12 percent of that uh, came from industry-sponsored funding, which I think, uh, at least as I understand, sort of grossly outperforms the national average for universities. And uh, that's another area that we, we have really worked hard to make it easy for industry to work with Georgia Tech, to a- have access to these really incredibly bright researchers and to uh, sponsor projects that uh, help us do more interesting research on campus, but also ultimately could uh, create some beneficial inventions that uh, could, again, benefit society ultimately in the form of new products and services. Now, that's a really interesting point that you made, because I hear from a lot of industry uh, representatives that they find working with universities extremely difficult, and, and you just hear them groan. Can you talk a little bit about what you guys have done to make it easy for industry to work with Georgia Tech? Sure. So within Georgia Tech, we have an umbrella group that we call industry engagement, and it's comprised of four departments. I'm the director of the traditional tech transfer function as one of those departments. And then we have um, a director of industry sponsor programs, and she has a team of contracting officers. And those are the ones that really handle all these industry sponsored projects. We also have a a, a enterprise agreements um, group, which handles Contracts that tend to be multifaceted or maybe in, uh, more campus-wide involved. So it may involve sponsored research. It may involve uh, other sorts of relationships, sponsoring students, a variety of things. And th- those flows through that group. And then we have 
and exchange agreements group, and they handle uh, most of our non-disclosure agreements, material transfer agreements, and data use agreements. So basically, any um, way that an industry partner would would potentially work with Georgia Tech would fall typically into one of those four departments. So we try to make it very easy under this industry engagement umbrella for industry to, to know who to contact and we can very quickly put them in contact with the director of the right department to help facilitate that um, particular interaction. Um, the other thing that we've done is we've tried to create um, template agreements of a variety of, of flavors, so to speak, that would meet different needs that industry might have. And that is reflected in what we call our contract continuum. And that's out on our website. And, and folks can go out and see that and can see those template agreements that allows a company to work with us in a traditional sponsored project function to do testing type agreements, do other types of agreements depending on what their needs are. And, and those are crafted to make it very easy to get to an executed agreement very quickly. Wow, that's impressive. So if 11 or 12% of that funding came from industry, then I would imagine the remainder probably came from federal agencies then? Yeah, mostly federal agencies, some foundations. Um, we certainly do a lot of... Um, sort of DOD-related research, but we also do research from you know, pretty much every other federal agency that you might name, National Science Foundation. We have NIH funding, NASA, Navy, um, you know, all the armed forces. Um, so we, we do quite a bit of, of federal funding, but, but also proportionally, we do quite a bit of industry-sponsored funding too. It's Like I said, it's an impressive amount of money and um, that you've been able to bring in in these new research awards. And and you and I were talking before the podcast started, I was asking you a little bit about the metrics for your office. And you had a really interesting answer when we were kind of talking about that. You said you really don't count disclosures and, and things like that, that you're really gauged by how many technologies you transfer, which I thought was interesting because a lot of offices, they do count those metrics and it's very important to the office. So you talk a little bit about, you know, the office philosophy in that regard. Sure. And, and we certainly do count most of the metrics that maybe most other offices maybe uh, count a little more carefully than we do. But but certainly the number of disclosures we get is important because that ultimately is the pool from which we can get licenses uh, transferred. So we certainly want, um, you know, a, a good solid uh, number of invention disclosures that come in that hopefully, you know, appropriately reflect the, the research base. Um, you know, typically over the last a number of years, we'll see you know, roughly 300 uh, invention disclosures, plus or minus, depending upon the year. They, they obviously fluctuate a bit. Um, and then, um, you know, of those, we, we have a process for evaluating them and trying to determine which ones we think we should move forward with, uh, with patent protection, if it's potentially patentable invention. And then we are fortunate to have marketing folks on our team and marketing support to help us craft marketing materials and to be able to to get those innovations out there where people can hopefully find them. Um, And we use a variety of channels. We do traditional email campaigns. We use social media. We go to conferences and trade shows and um, have meetings where we uh, spend a lot of time in the partnering uh, sessions trying to meet with companies. And and we're fortunate that uh, Tech's been doing this a while and has a pretty good reputation. So we have a lot of companies that contact us as well. And that certainly helps to make those uh, connections. Yeah, it sounds like it. So uh, do you guys do anything different when you vet your disclosures that come in? I mean, you get a really pretty high number of them. Is there anything unique that you you do or look for, you would say, versus maybe another office? 
Um, I, I doubt it. I, I suspect any medium to large size office probably, um, you know, we probably do things in a similar fashion. Um, certainly not identically necessarily, but we're looking for, for technical merit, um, you know, novelty, um, uh, any prior art uh, that might be relevant if, and, and particularly if it looks like it might be problematic, that's certainly important in deciding whether we move forward with the technology or not. Um, you know, is there a reasonable path to move this technology forward to market? Um, you know, we're not necessarily um, focused on, is this a billion dollar opportunity? You know, it could be a couple million or a couple $10 million opportunity. And as long as there seems to be a viable path to market, that's really the most important factor because, you know, our priority is utilization. is getting as many technologies transferred as we can and into the hands of our industry partners who can do all the things you have to do to further develop uh, these early stage technologies and turn them into these products and services that uh, that benefit society. Given that you're moving, trying to move that many different technologies, what do you do about PCT and, and foreign filing? I mean, it sounds like you guys move a lot of things and that can be very expensive. Do you do PCTs a lot in, in national phase or does it depend on if you have a licensee? How do you do it? It depends. So, uh, you know, every case is unique in some manner, and certainly there's a baseline level at which we we treat every technology that comes in the door. But but certainly, you have to look at the uh, the specifics of of a given technology and its potential path to market. Um, and then other factors come into play. Has there been a public disclosure on this invention uh, already? And you know, is it more than a year past when that happened? And if so, then we're not going to be able to file anything. Um, you know, if there was a public disclosure, but we're still within the year, then we can at least still file U.S. Um, and if there hasn't been a, an enabling public disclosure, then we at least have the ability to think about PCT. And then we just evaluate it based on uh, the criteria I, I talked about a moment ago. Um, we certainly do a lot of, um, of uh, PCT filings, and we are marketing these technologies along the way from the first filing all the way through uh, a point where we may, we may decide not to continue the case or maybe only continue it in the U.S. I would say like most offices, we probably don't do a lot of speculative uh, foreign filings. When we get to national phase, as long as we still feel like the technology has a, a, a plausible path forward and maybe we just haven't found the right licensee yet, and most, if not virtually all cases, will at least continue in the U.S. And if we feel like there, uh, there may be you know, Europe has a lot of potential, but again, we just haven't found that right partner. We might might do an EP application uh, just to give us more time to uh, to find that right licensee. We we don't tend to go into a lot of countries on on a speculative basis, just because it does get so costly at that point. Yeah, it gets very expensive. You know, we certainly have a a reasonable patent budget for uh, for our research base and a, and an operation our size, but it's it's certainly not unlimited. So we do have to make business decisions along the way about what to protect and for how long and in what manner. Yep, absolutely. How about your office's approach to litigation? Do you defend your, your patents aggressively or is your office adverse litigation? Have you had much litigation? And, and that might even include IPRs or, or PGRs um, under the AIA. We certainly expect our licensees to vigorously defend any um, patent infringement of, of licensed patents. And, and that's sort of the first uh, line of expectation. We always reserve the right to do so ourselves if they choose not to. Um, you know, any litigation that we might enter into or any enforcement actions, 
we would just have to look at the facts of that specific matter and make the decision if that was a warranted uh, step or not. Um, so, you know, that's in terms of whether or not we're going to actually move forward with a particular action, that's above my pay grade. Um, but but uh, we, we certainly understand the importance of, you know, making sure you, you enforce your patents and protect your patents. And yeah, that's really probably all I have to say on that topic. Have you had any litigation while you've been at Georgia Tech or, or none so far? Not that we've initiated. Certainly, like probably a lot of universities, we are on the receiving end of it sometimes. But Yeah, um, yeah unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. That, I've The first interview that I did in this uh, podcast series was with Dean Sell at Wake Forest, and they had a big litigation, and he uh, talked quite extensively about uh, how uh, it wasn't, you know, it's quite the experience the first time you go through and especially as a university and having to save emails and do document production is always a, a challenge. So, you know, it's like once you go through it, it it's one of those things you, you never really quite forget. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about corporate partners. We talked a little bit about it when we talked about some of the research funding that you've been getting. Um, and I know I was looking at your corporate report and it said in 2019, you had 282 corporate partners, which is an incredible uh, number. And one of the things uh, your report talked about was that your office decided to change the way they interacted with industry way back in 2011. Um, can you expand a little bit more about you know what led to that change and what changes you, in fact, did make that have allowed you to have that tremendous number of corporate partners? Um, I will, yeah, I can, I can a bit. I mean, that obviously all predates my, my being at Georgia Tech in, sure. in this role. Um, I've been there about four and a half, uh, going on five years, I guess. Um, but my understanding uh, from the from the history of it is that we certainly had a lot of interest from industry um, about working with us, but they didn't necessarily um, understand how to, and we didn't necessarily, um, you know, have. The, the sorts of templates and things in place that we do now. And so there was a concerted effort to create uh, these templates that were as streamlined as possible that made sense for both sides. It allowed us to reach agreement on a particular project and budget and, uh, you know, deal with things like intellectual property on the front end in, in an appropriate way that is, um, you know, in, in uh, conjunction with applicable laws that so we're, we're doing things the right way. But just to, to be um, flexible as we could and creative as we could in, in trying to craft agreements when there might be special needs that industry had. And it really led to that contract continuum that I mentioned earlier and certainly encourage listeners to go check that out on our website. Um, I think it, uh, the, the graphics and the explanations there would, would uh, do a far better job of explaining it than, than I would in this podcast. But that's really, I think, what was the nexus that, that led to that is we had a lot of in, interest from industry. I think there were interest from uh, uh, faculty on campus as well to work more with industry and the people at GTRC, which in, really includes the current senior management above me, uh, who've been there, you know, 20-ish years or more, uh, they really were the leaders in, in making that happen. Yeah, it's really impressive when you look at your, your report. I mean, the corporate partners are just amazing. You have companies like 3M, Abbott, Avi, Adobe, AT&T, BSF, Bayer, Boeing, Caterpillar, Comcast, Delta, Dow, Duke Energy, Kimberly Clark, Georgia Pacific, Microsoft, Pfizer, just Rolls-Royce, just to name a few. 
it's really a, quite an impressive list of, of corporate partners. It is. And I will also uh, note that another um, uh, side effect of this relationship with, with companies being so strong is that many of them have um, actually set up shop on um, what we call Tech Square, which is adjacent to campus. And they actually have facilities where they have people staffed so they can more easily access uh, wow. people on campus and they can more closely um, participate in collaborative research projects and things of that nature. So it just really has been a great way to strengthen the bonds between these companies and Georgia Tech. It really sounds like it. What about philanthropic organizations like the Gates Foundation or the Parker Institute? Um, do you have involvement with some of those types of institutions as well? We do. Um, we certainly have foundations that sponsor projects. Or certainly Gates um, has and, and is currently you know, discussing other uh, opportunities to sponsor projects at Georgia Tech. Um, I think those you know, relationships are all very positive. Foundations can be a little bit challenging sometimes to work with and their um, IP requirements are sometimes a little, little tough to, to, to manage. Um, but, but by and large, you know, we certainly are happy to work with foundations, happy to try to achieve their philanthropic goals of what they're trying to achieve and, and to allow them to access uh, the the research capabilities and and bright folks we have at Georgia Tech because again that's another way to to benefit society if we can work with one of these foundations um, and Gates in particular has you know significant resources uh, to bear um, they can solve some really big problems and for us to be able to participate in that activity even if it's to, just to play a small role with a larger collaboration of other universities and maybe companies um, it, you know is certainly important. And we're, we're happy to do that. That's really great. Now that we've talked about some of your corporate partners, can you tell us about some of your office's biggest success stories, just to give people an idea of some, some of the things that have worked out really well for your office? Um, yeah, I think we've had some interesting technologies come to market in the history of the office. Um, one that um, I think has gotten some press a few years ago was the Cardio Mems uh, company was uh, started off of a Georgia Tech technology. It's a health monitoring technology, and they grew the company from um, to from basically zero to a very large valuation. It was acquired uh, by St. Jude Medical several years ago uh, for several hundred million dollars, and St. Jude was subsequently acquired by Abbott. And um, you know, I understand the technology is still um, alive and well, and and you know, in the marketplace. So that's uh, one uh, that's really interesting. Um, we also have a, a partnership with uh, NXN Licensing, which um, is trying to commercialize some uh, photochromic uh, polymers that have been developed at Georgia Tech, um, and um, also actually University of Florida. It, uh, there's IP there from from both institutions, some of it co-owned. And we think that has a lot of interesting applications where these uh, polymers will change colors to uh, depend on uh, the application of an electric field. So you can envision a variety of applications where you might want to change the color or maybe go from a color to transparent or transparent to a color. So uh, they're uh, busily trying to, to find some market applications for those and, and work with other corporate partners themselves. So that's another uh, interesting one that uh, is, is sort of coming to be to fruition. Wow, those are both really impressive. Well, like any, I think, University Tech Transfer Office, there's there's always challenges, right? And and what would you say your office's two, three biggest challenges are at the moment? 
Well, I would say probably the biggest challenge is what every tech transfer office has, which is finding the right corporate partner for a given technology. I think that's a universal problem. So that's not going to be a newsworthy comment no. to anyone. <laughs> no, not at all. But but certainly, you know, I, I think any um, anyone who's honest in the tech transfer field, um, and particularly at the director level, you know, would say, yeah, I'd love to have more resources. Fortunately, we do have really good resources, so I'm not complaining about that. And don't don't want to send that message, but you know it, it would always be nice to have an extra licensing associate or some other um, you know resource that might help you uh, have a little more bandwidth. Um, but but by and large, I I really don't have a lot to uh, to say that we're we're missing per se. Um, we I think have a really good organization. Uh, I think we do tech transfer the right way generally. Not to say we can't do some things better, and certainly I've tried to tweak things where I can to improve processes and make things run smoother and for us to have a uniform approach to how we do tech transfer. But fortunately, you know, the office was organized in a, in a really good fashion uh, a number of years ago before I got there. And, um, you know, it's just been my job to sort of build upon that really excellent infrastructure that was there. Yeah, it sounds like you guys have amazing infrastructure, and it sounds also like you have a really, really good staff of people, and it, it sounds like you have um, people who stay, you know, at, which is always another challenge for tech transfer offices as well. It, it is. I, th- I think it's harder to keep people at the license and associate level. I mean, it's just the, the nature of it. I mean, you you bring someone in, you get them trained up really well, and they get poached by another office. I mean, that it just happens. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, to some extent, I, I sort of feel like I'm running a farm team. Graduating them up to the major leagues. Yeah. But as long as people leave for the right reason and they um, they go off and do do better things or do great things with their career, they build upon uh, what they learned at, at GTRC and, and they take something positive away from that. Uh, I'm okay with that. I mean, every, probably everyone listening to this has made career moves for one reason or another. I certainly have. When an opportunity has come up that was like, wow, that's something I'd really like to do. And you may hate, really hate to leave your current organization, but the opportunity is just too good to too pass good. up. Yeah. So I, I, I absolutely do not begrudge people who um, are on my staff for a period of time and uh, go off to do other things elsewhere. I, I completely get it. That's just the way the business world works. And yeah, it's the nature of the beast. It is. What about, we were talking before we were originally going to do this podcast at Autumn in beautiful San Diego, but we got thwarted due to uh, coronavirus. Uh, what's your view on Autumn and some other organizations that uh, provide membership and services to, to people in tech transfer? Um, I think Autumn in particular is, is a fantastic organization. I've been a member of Autumn for, I guess, probably close to 15 years now. And I think it provides great resources on a number of levels. It's, it's, uh, it has uh, really great educational programs and uh, seminars and, and things that you can participate in, which is, I think, great, particularly for training more junior folks in the field. Um, it's a great networking organization. The national meeting is, is, is a great place to meet new companies, meet new people, to meet colleagues in the tech transfer world and, you know, pick their brain about how their operations work and you might learn something that you can use back home. Um, so I think it's been a fantastic operation. Um, I don't have as much experience with uh, LES. I've, I've never been a member of that, but, but what I know of it, it's, it's a similarly uh, beneficial organization to folks who belong. Um, and uh, I've uh, participated in some LES uh, seminars uh, from time to time when I was in NC State and a few since I've been uh, in Atlanta. Um, I'm actually um, 
moderating a panel uh, for an uh, artificial intelligence session that we're hosting at Georgia Tech in May. So I encourage people to check that out. Oh, awesome. Yeah. That's a hot topic right now. Yes, it is. <laughs> but, uh, but generally, I, th- I think all of these organizations are beneficial. They, they advocate for the, for the field and for things related to the field, whether it's, it's Autumn or LES or Incur or other, other similar organizations. I think they're all very helpful to what we do. Yeah, those are the two that people that I interview usually talk about the most um, as providing the most value for, for people in tech transfer. What about this credentialing? Do you think it makes a difference? Does it make a difference in your office? Is it something you look for when you're hiring people? Can you you talk a little bit about that? I think it depends on the office. I mean, it, it, to, to me, it, it's, not, um, it's not a deal breaker one way or the other. Uh, it's certainly nice if someone has a credential. It, it certainly demonstrates they've achieved a level of proficiency. Uh, so I certainly don't discount uh, its importance or, or that it's a beneficial thing. But in terms of when I'm looking to hire uh, a, a team member, I'm I'm really more focused on uh, what is your your technical background and your training, what is your experience in uh, tech transfer or things that are relevant to tech transfer. Um, you know, and another important aspect I look for in, in hiring someone is what are your people skills and how do you communicate? Uh, being able to communicate well in all forms and being able to interact with lots of different types of people in the sort of innovation ecosystem is really important to being successful in tech transfer. Absolutely. So uh, those are really the most important things I look for. Great. That's very good comments. Finally, I usually end these podcasts by asking the person I'm interviewing if they could have three wishes or a genie in a bottle um, for their office, what would they be? So I'm, I'm curious, uh, it sounds like your office runs well. If, if you had three wishes or less than three wishes, what, what would those be for your office? <laughs> I guess maybe if I could have a wish, it would be for people, uh, all the different stakeholders, whether it be the inventors, uh, the companies, entrepreneurs, service providers, to truly understand uh, and appreciate and, and um, embrace the intent of Baidol, uh, what it's about, um, to understand the challenges that go into trying to do what we do, particularly at a university. Transferring technologies out of a university is not easy. It's a heavy lift. And I think a lot of people sometimes conflate research done in industry with research that's done at universities. Yes, I would agree. So I'll, I'll make a comment, which maybe gets to my wish uh, that people would understand the differences. So, you know, research in industry is typically directed towards trying to launch a product or service down the road. And you're doing R&D or development to, to make that happen. And, and quite often, intellectual property comes out of that activity. And for all practical purposes, when that product or service launches, 100% of the IP that was developed along the way is is associated with that product or service. So it's you're essentially transferring all the IP. Now, obviously, that's not always correct because projects get killed, rebacked, or whatever. But for purposes of my example, I'll we'll say that it is. You know, university research is fundamentally different. We're doing fundamental research by and large, not nearly as much of the research that goes on at universities is applied. Though we certainly do, uh, you know, a fair amount of it, but there's also a lot of fundamental research where someone has an interesting idea they want to explore. They write a grant to NIH or NSF, it gets funded, they go off and do it. And sometimes the intellectual property comes out of that activity. And now we have a solution that has to go find a problem to solve as opposed to a hey, solution that someone identified yeah. that you develop IP to support along the way. So I guess if I had one big wish, it would be just for people to understand 
the the real fundamental differences between how research works in industry versus how it works in academia and why it's such a, a challenging um, task to get these university-created innovations out into the marketplace because there's not always a problem that that, um, that innovation can solve in a commercially relevant way. No, that's really great. That You make an excellent point, uh, and hopefully people from industry who listen to this podcast will We'll take that to heart because that's usually, I think, sometimes the biggest stumbling blocks between industry and, and the university sector. Well, Terry, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? Oh, sure. Um, I really appreciate you having me here. My direct email address is uh, terry.bray at industry.gotech.edu. And if uh, you uh, want to, you can also find my contact information, including the web, uh, my email address, uh, out on our website. And would be happy to uh, talk with anyone who has questions about my comments today, would like to uh, try to connect with Georgia Tech and see if there might be some technologies that would be of interest to them, or maybe uh, some researchers that they would want to contact to possibly sponsor a project. Um, happy to to have a conversation with them. Also happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. Uh, always uh, good to expand uh, networks because that's another really important aspect of being able to uh, be successful in tech transfer. Awesome, absolutely. Well, thank you so much again, Terry. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk with you. Thank you, Lisa. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups. Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses, insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and align on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.